Hi, welcome to the latest episode of DebtWired. I'm Rashmi Basu, co-managing editor of DebtWire North America. On this episode, we speak with David Turetsky, partner at Riding Case. David touches upon a number of hot topic issues, ranging from cryptocurrency to lender-on-lender tension. David, thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me on. Very much looking forward to speaking with you today. So David, is a distressed cycle coming? I mean, how do you think the cycle will be different from previous cycles? Well, let me start by saying that none of us has a crystal ball. With that said, I do think there will be a distress cycle in the near or not too distant future. And I think that this view is one that is shared among my fellow restructuring practitioners and professionals. We've started to experience greater and more frequent outreach on new potential restructuring situations and opportunities. So at least from a market chatter perspective, you know, our proverbial phones are ringing more frequently and it feels like a distress cycle is the direction that things are headed, even if we're not quite there yet. But I also think that this sentiment aligns with macroeconomic indicators that suggest that a distress cycle may be on the horizon. And those indicators include increased inflation, which entails rising costs, high interest rates, which increase the cost of borrowing, stock market declines, which make it more difficult to raise equity financing, the impact of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, declines in consumer spending and in consumer confidence, and declining corporate revenues, which suggests the companies are starting to experience greater difficulties. We've also seen a softening in deal volume for M&A and financing transactions, uh, which may further suggest that we are about to enter a distress cycle. And when you put all of this together with companies that, you know, for a long period of time, were able to borrow significant amounts at much lower interest rates and costs, and who may now be facing maturities or liquidity crunches, a, a distress cycle seems to be a likely outcome. And in that regard, we've seen an uptick in liability management transactions, which may signal that more companies are proactively working through their issues, but there may be a more generalized downturn on the horizon. And I'll also note that while Chapter 11 filings are not what they were, or frankly, where I expect them to be as, as time goes on, we have started to see an uptick in Chapter 11 filings as well. Uh, So there are several indicators that suggest that a distress cycle is coming, even if we've not yet seen the large wave of restructurings that I think those of us in the industry expect to see. As to the second part of your question, I do think that the the cycle may be a little bit different than more recent cycles that we've seen. So as I think about the most recent cycles for distress that we've seen, I think about the 2008 financial crisis, the oil and gas downturn from 2014 to 2016, as well as the brief increase in Chapter 11 filings and restructurings at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And while I'm no doubt oversimplifying, uh, my view is that those prior distress cycles were shortened by a combination of low interest rates and the Fed putting more money into the economy. We're obviously in in a very different posture these days. The Fed is now intentionally increasing interest rates and pulling back uh, to curb inflation. And so the government may therefore be unwilling or unable to change course and use the tactics that it has historically used to mitigate the effects of a forthcoming downturn. And the reason for that is it may undo the work that it's trying to do to reduce inflation now. So the upshot is, I think we may see a longer distress cycle than the ones that we've most recently seen. With that said, I wouldn't foreclose some form of uh, government intervention and mitigation through that intervention which we've seen before and we may see again because governments are naturally going to look to alleviate uh, the ill effects of a downturn on their general population. 
But with that said, that intervention may not be as straightforward or take the same form as in prior cycles. Which industries do you think will be a hotbed for restructuring activity? Look, by no means exhaustive, we're looking at at several industries, and we may be we may be accurate, we may be we may be wildly off. But you know, as I said, none of us has a crystal ball. But when you look at kind of macroeconomic indicators and and indicators within the economy, you know, I'll give you a few industries that I think may be candidates for potential restructuring activity. Crypto is is obviously one industry that's been in the news very recently, and that crypto and that restructuring professionals are watching closely. The crypto markets have been volatile, and we've seen some $2 trillion of lost value over the last year. In May, we saw the collapses of Terra Luna and Three Arrows, and that was followed uh, in the summer by Chapter 11 filings by Voyager and Celsius. Just last week, FTX, which had agreed to buy Voyager's assets out of bankruptcy, itself filed a Chapter 11 proceeding, and its Bahamian affiliate uh, has filed a Chapter 15 proceeding uh, to seek recognition of a Bahamian liquidation. There are also rumors of additional distress within the marketplace. So crypto is obviously a new industry. It's one that I expect will see restructurings, and those restructurings I expect are going to raise new and and novel challenges. With that said, I also expect that courts and restructuring practitioners and professionals will rise to the occasion to meet those challenges. Moving from a less traditional industry to one that is highly traditional, real estate is another industry that folks are watching, particularly mortgage companies and home builders. Mortgage rates are at a 20-year high, and the cost of building materials and supplies have increased dramatically. These factors are going to create real pressure, I think, on the demand for new homes and on home ownership more generally. And arguably, we're already seeing some fallout here. So if you look at the large Chapter 11 cases that have been filed in 2022, I think what you're going to find is that more real estate cases have been filed than any other type of case. And in October of this year, a third of the large Chapter 11s filed were real estate related. So that's another industry that we're watching. Healthcare is is yet another industry that may be impacted. In particular, senior living centers continue to be challenged because demand has fallen far short of the supply that has grown. In this regard, during the pandemic, larger numbers of seniors were looking towards alternatives to assisted living facilities that are living out of their homes or seeking other alternatives. These companies also may not be able to count on the government support subsidies that they've come to rely on. So when that is coupled with reduced demand, companies may see their liquidity tighten and may be in need of restructurings. Like real estate, we may have already seen some movement in the healthcare industry. So when, again, if you look at the number of cases that have been filed, healthcare companies account for a disproportionate amount of new Chapter 11 filings over the last several months. The automotive industry is is another industry that may be impacted. Supply chain issues, including the global semiconductor chip shortage, have had a large impact on the industry over the last several years. The industry experts are you know, now saying that even as companies are finally able to resolve their supply issues, uh, they may see a drop in demand, which could lead to oversupply issues in 2023. And again, a need for restructuring. Retail has been a tried and true candidate for restructuring over the last several years, and I think it may experience further distress. Consumer spending and consumer confidence are each down, which tends to be bad for retail businesses. Retail businesses also need to contend with ongoing supply chain issues and increased costs of labor and logistics. These challenges may result in in the industry being hit hard. And if retailers don't have a strong holiday season, they may be left sitting on a lot of inventory that's defining in value. And that, in turn, could contribute to more retail restructurings in 2023. Finally, aerospace is another industry that may warrant keeping an eye on. 
supply chain issues and increased labor and logistics costs, which seems to be a theme here, may take their toll on the aerospace industry. And with rising costs, uh, aerospace companies with long-term contracts may see their margins squeezed and they may struggle. So those are the industries that immediately come to mind. Again, there may be others, but, but those are the industries that we've been watching. And heading into this downturn, how do you think a lack of lender protections plays out in the recessionary environment? Look, I think it's a, it's an excellent question, and I think it's going to have ramifications. You know, for several years leading up to this one, the financing markets were very borrower friendly. Lenders competed fiercely to provide loans, and this resulted in, you know, depending upon your perspective, uh, what one might call a race to the bottom in terms of diminishing lender protections. In particular, on the private company side, lenders were very aggressive in the terms that they offered, particularly to portfolio companies of large equity sponsors. And the result of this competition among lenders has been that covenant-like deals have been prevalent among corporate borrowers for the last several years. You know, as I look out at some of the statistics, by some estimates, if you look out over the last five years, more than 80% of institutional loans have been what we call covenant light. And this dynamic can have real practical implications in a distressed cycle. So the first is that holders of covenant light debt have less of an ability to call defaults and no early warning system of distress. And as a result, borrowers may have long runways and greater flexibility before they actually need to engage with their debt holders. And the converse is that those debt holders will likely have less leverage as this runway plays out. This dynamic can provide borrowers with various options. Borrowers can look to be proactive and opportunistic and to generate transactions that create value through liability management exercises that go around their debt holders or that engage with a subset of debt holders. This may lessen the need for a comprehensive restructuring down the road, or it may alter the party's positions in the event of a restructuring. Borrowers may also simply decide to play out the string and wait to see how things evolve. And the downside to that is that if things do not improve, additional value may be lost and the company may ultimately require a more comprehensive restructuring down the road. Second, in structures that include both covenant light debt and debt that has covenants that may be triggered as business conditions deteriorate, holders of the debt that is attached to those covenants may find themselves with a more meaningful seat at the table earlier in the process. So I'll take an example of what I think is a fairly typical structure. You know, one typical structure that we often see is, uh, is a structure that includes covenant-like term loans uh, coupled with a revolving credit facility that has financial covenants. And the financial covenants may have been very comfortable at the inception of the loan, but they become less so as the company's business becomes more challenged. In those circumstances, particularly as the companies start to experience distress, holders of the RCF debt may be in a better position to negotiate concessions for themselves earlier in the process. So that's how I think this all plays out in terms of covenant light versus you know, debt that has covenants and how that may impact things as we move forward. Making money in this type of climate is no easy feat. Do you expect companies and their lenders to become more aggressive with the interpretation of credit documents? Do you expect to see more creditor on creditor violence, asset stripping, et cetera? So I, I do. Let me start. I'll say that I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with the use of the terms creditor on creditor violence or asset stripping. Um, you know, there's a slant there that's attached to those terms that may or may not be fair. And that depends upon your perspective and facts and circumstances. But what I will say is that restructurings generally involve intercreditor and interstakeholder disputes as companies and constituents determine how value should be allocated. And it's therefore unsurprising that companies facing distress and their creditors and stakeholders have looked closely at their debt documents uh, and will continue to look closely at their debt documents 
for ways to generate value and optionality for themselves. And I think they've become increasingly proactive and creative in doing so. And so we've seen so-called drop-down transactions that have permitted companies to obtain liquidity through new money financings backed by previously encumbered property. So in a drop-down, the borrower transfers collateral backing an existing loan to an unrestricted subsidiary. Because the subsidiary is unrestricted, most debt documents provide for the automatic release of the lien on that collateral. By the same token, because the subsidiary is unrestricted, it is outside the reach of the permitted debt and lien covenants in the borrower's debt documents. And as such, the unrestricted subsidiary is able to repledge that collateral to support new secured debt, and that can alter parties' rights. Some of the more high-profile examples of this are the transfer of IP assets of J. Crew, iHeart's transfer of shares in Clear Channel from the guarantor subsidiary to a non-guarantor subsidiary, transfer of intellectual property assets by Clear Stores to an unrestricted subsidiary, and PetSmart's transfer of shares in Chewy. We've also seen so-called up-tier transactions, and in an up-tier transaction, the borrower works with the majority of its lenders to amend the loan documents to permit the issuance of new debt backed by a superior lien. And the transaction may also include an exchange of the majority's existing loans for new secured loans of a higher priority. The borrower will therefore share with the majority of its lenders part of the surplus that it created. So it's a, it's a win-win for both the borrower and the participating lenders. So I think that the stress companies and their creditors and stakeholders are going to continue to be creative and to work to generate value where they can find it. And this is particularly true because of the covenant-like debt that these companies have, which is something we just talked about. A lack of covenants means that companies have greater flexibility to do transactions and to generate value and to extend runways. And it may also mean that debt holders have an incentive to do these deals or to become more aggressive to better position themselves. With that said, I also expect that we may see creditors and other stakeholders who are outside of these transactions looking for new ways to challenge them. Minority lenders have become increasingly aggressive, and we've seen that in legal challenges to certain of the pandemic vintage up-tier transactions. For example, you know, just two weeks ago, according to published reports, CERTA's lenders filed a challenge to the company's 2020 loan recapitalization. And look, this isn't to say that the challenges have merit. It's only to say that we've recently seen creditors become more aggressive in their opposition to transactions. And that's a possibility as we move forward. So to summarize, I don't see any of this as being a new phenomenon. I do think there's going to be more to come as companies and their creditors and stakeholders look to enhance their positions in an environment that is increasingly challenging. What about rescue financing? A lot of companies were needed, especially those with floating rate debt instruments. Is this a lender's market where investors were abstracted value from companies with lender-friendly provisions? So let me take that in, in turn. I think the short answer to all of the questions that you've posed is yes, but, but let me explain. So first, I do think we're likely to have uh, companies in need of rescue financing. The current business climate is you know, really challenging, and I anticipate that companies that experience declining performance will need additional liquidity. As you've noted, companies that have floating rate instruments are going to see their costs of borrowing increase as a result of rising interest rates. And so while every situation is different, I also think we're likely to see a lender's market for rescue financing as well as a need. To begin, the market for rescue financing is generally more limited uh, than the market for more conventional blue chip financings. And I think this is likely to be especially true given the current state of the financing markets. We're in an environment in which traditional bank financings have contracted and bond issuances are increasingly challenging. I also anticipate that there are going to be fewer sources of rescue loans given the current climate. Those willing to provide rescue financing may include direct lenders or, frankly, existing debt holders who are looking to provide rescue financing as a way to protect 
or enhance their existing position. This more limited market, I think, is going to result in more lender-friendly terms with providers of rescue financing looking to, one, achieve a return that compensates them for the risks associated with their borrower and the challenging circumstances that that borrower faces. And they're going to want to ensure that they're first in line to be paid. And they're also going to want to ensure that their position is protected. It's not enough to just negotiate for your consideration and loan protections. You want certainty that uh, you're not going to wind up facing some other transaction that in effect undermines what you've negotiated for. So unless things change, I do anticipate that we're going to see rescue loans with tight covenants and a combination of one or more of the following features. So significant interest rates, fees, make holes, OIDs, and other consideration. Depending on the circumstances, I think distressed companies may also find themselves in the position of only being able to raise new financing as part of a dip in support of a Chapter 11 filing rather than through an out-of-court rescue loan. We just talked about creativity that companies and their stakeholders are showing in working with existing credit documents to effectuate transactions. And so the flip side is that providers of rescue financing are going to be really careful or may be very careful uh, and may want to lock in those protections as part of a bankruptcy proceeding you know, through a court order. And that may be the, the condition of their willingness to extend new credit in lieu of doing a, an out-of-court rescue loan. What about valuation fights? Do you expect to see more ahead where does the fulcrum cut? So yes, look, valuation fights have been a feature of Chapter 11 cases for a, for a long time, and I expect that that's going to continue. There are, of course, cases in which valuation is not a contested issue. So valuation is often not an issue in prepackaged Chapter 11 cases in which a single class is being impaired and that class is consented to the impairment. It's it's also often not an issue in solvent debtor cases in which all creditors are being paid in full. And the reason is that all creditors are being paid in full. But in in many Chapter 11 cases, value is alleged to break in favor of senior creditors and more junior constituents may find themselves receiving little to no value. And in those cases, I do anticipate that the more junior constituents are going to argue that the debtors are being valued at unduly low levels and that in effect, the more senior creditors are getting a boon and, and a bonus. By the same token, I also expect that the more senior creditors are going to argue that absent a transaction that pays them in full and in cash, any argument for a valuation, for a higher valuation, is entirely theoretical and should be rejected. In terms of where the fulcrum is likely to cut, I'd offer the following thoughts. First, valuation is highly fact-specific, and thus the particular facts and circumstances that particular companies face are going to determine where the fulcrum lies. But from a general perspective, with deteriorating economic conditions and a more challenging business environment, I do think companies are going to have their work cut out for them in dealing with their issues and in maximizing performance and value. And to the extent that companies do experience distress, you know, from my experience, the sooner they begin to address that distress and the more proactive they are, the more likely it is that they're going to be able to address their issues, they're going to be able to preserve value, and that the value that they create and preserve is going to extend to more junior constituencies. The converse is also true. So in my experience, the longer that companies wait, the more difficult it is to turn things around, and the more likely uh, that the fulcrum will fall within the more senior side of the capital structure. You know, this, of course, is all uh, a very general observation, and the particular circumstances are, are going to determine the options that it has when it, and when it has them but they will also determine what valuation can be achieved. We've seen several non-U.S. domiciled companies or companies with global operations use the U.S. bankruptcy courts to pursue restructuring. What do you think of this trend? Is there going to be more to come? 
again, the short answer here is yes. Uh, I think that there is a long-term trend of companies with global operations uh, that are increasingly using U.S. bankruptcy courts to effectuate restructurings, not only in the U.S., but also worldwide. And I actually think this is a real positive development because it has allowed companies to achieve a more extensive fix of their businesses. When I started practicing law, the playbook for U.S. companies with non-U.S. operations was really to make sure that those non-U.S. operations were adequately funded so that there would not need to be a, a non-U.S. restructuring. And at the time, the use of bankruptcy proceedings to restructure non-U.S. businesses was, was largely untested. And so there were real concerns about whether non-U.S. businesses could be effectively reorganized. That's why uh, companies took this approach. But as companies have continued to become more global, and frankly, as the restructuring industry has evolved to address the needs of companies with increasingly worldwide operations, we've come to recognize that U.S. bankruptcy courts can be effective venues to restructure even non-U.S. businesses. And those restructurings can be accomplished through several you know, U.S. bankruptcy tools. And those include using a Chapter 11 proceeding to restructure a company's global business, using a Chapter 15 proceeding to obtain U.S. recognition of a non-U.S. insolvency proceeding, or frankly, using the prospects of U.S. proceedings, be they Chapter 15 or Chapter 11 proceedings, to negotiate a consensual restructuring. And I'm fortunate enough, you know, White & Case has been at the forefront of this evolution and really has advised many companies in their global restructurings, including by way of U.S. proceedings. You know, by way of example, we recently represented Hertz in restructuring its global businesses. That global restructuring included a Chapter 11 case for Hertz's U.S. and Canadian entities and non-judicial restructuring for certain of the company's non-U.S. businesses. And while Hertz entities based outside of North America did not ultimately need to file Chapter 11 cases and were able to consensually restructure their businesses, they did so against the backdrop of potential insolvency proceedings for those entities, including potential U.S. Chapter 11 cases. Another recent example is Swissport, which is a Zurich-based company that provides ground and cargo handling support services to the aviation industry. Swissport has approximately 200 entities organized across 50 jurisdictions. It restructured through a debt for equity swap facilitated by multiple schemes of arrangement and a prepackaged sale of Swissport's business out of an English administration. And each of those schemes was supported by a Chapter 15 recognition order by the U.S. Bankruptcy Court. And we, you know, we've also represented and continue to represent numerous other companies in restructurings that employ both non-U.S. insolvency proceedings and Chapter 15 or Chapter 11 proceedings in the U.S. So with the ever-increasing internationalization of business, which is really a theme that we've seen, you know, for the last, I would say, several decades, we're going to see these restructurings continue and we're going to see them continue with increased frequency and creativity. Something that you've mentioned before is cryptocurrency, which is all over the headlines these days. This is obviously a new frontier as far as restructurings are concerned. What are some of the issues that have arisen in these cases? Yeah, there, there are several key issues that immediately come to mind. And, and as you've noted, this is really a new frontier. So this is not an exhaustive list at all, but these are some of the key issues. The most basic question that these cases are going to need to address is who owns the crypto? You know, does the crypto that has been deposited with a crypto exchange uh, that is going through bankruptcy belong to the customers who made the deposit? Or is it property of the bankruptcy estate? A second set of questions is, should the rights of customers be measured in crypto or in coin? Or should they be measured in US dollars or dollarized? And, and what should the measurement date be? You know, generally, customers of crypto platforms and crypto exchanges 
tend to view their holdings in terms of the crypto assets that they hold. So just put it in the way of a concrete example. If I've deposited 100 Bitcoins uh, with a platform, the likelihood is that I view my holdings as being the 100 Bitcoins and, and not US dollars or the US dollar equivalent of those 100 Bitcoin. And this is really an important distinction because customers often want their recoveries in kind. They want their Bitcoin back. They don't want cash distributions that reflect the value of Bitcoin or of whatever other crypto coin they happen to hold at a particular moment in time. Separately, to the extent that dollarization is determined to be appropriate, the timing of that dollarization can also be a real, a real issue because if it's determined, for example, that holdings should be dollarized using the values that existed as of the bankruptcy filing date or the petition date, then customers may not get the benefit of the upside from increases in their crypto values that occur post-bankruptcy. By contrast, to the extent that crypto values are assessed as of you know, for example, the effective date of a plan or plan confirmation date, then there is more easily uh, an, an opportunity to realize uh, appreciation in crypto values that may have occurred during the Chapter 11 case. There may also be regulatory issues. I anticipate that those will be real issues that come up. You know, up to now, crypto has been, you know, has not been highly regulated, but regulators are starting to take a closer look at the crypto industry. To the extent of go forward regulation, the capacities of crypto companies to comply with that go forward regulation may have impact upon their ability to reorganize, whether that's in court or out of court. And in addition, you know, crypto businesses deal extensively with retail customers, and there may be more practical issues that don't necessarily apply to companies that have creditor bodies composed primarily of financial institutions. The first is what I would call the human element. Individuals who are depending upon their savings and now find those crypto savings tied up in a bankruptcy proceeding, they face very different hardships and circumstances than financial creditors do. And companies and committees representing those individuals are going to find themselves based, facing different sets of issues in terms of how to address the needs of those individuals. One is, from a very practical perspective, what is the best way to communicate and educate and inform individual creditors in a crypto chapter 11? Now, crypto holders often view themselves as part of a community that interacts on social media. And so therefore, debtors and committees with significant retail customers may find it appropriate to engage in more expansive social media outreaches and efforts in order to communicate with their constituents. Uh, one example I have is, is Celsius, where White and Case represents the official committee of unsecured creditors. In, in that case, the committee sought and received formal bankruptcy court authority to communicate with customers through social media platforms like Reddit, Discord, Telegram, and Facebook. And the committee also received express court authorization to establish a Twitter account to communicate with customers. So look, these are just some of the issues and that crypto companies face and that courts and bankruptcy practitioners are gonna have to face, there are gonna be others. Uh, but as I've said before, I'm, I'm confident that courts and practitioners and customers are gonna be able to adapt and that we'll find ways to address these issues and the other issues that are going to come up. David, thank you so much for spending our time with us and giving us a deep dive into what we to expect in restructurings. My pleasure. I'm so thankful that you were uh, willing to have me and thankful to uh, be able to give you my thoughts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Debt Wired. Please like, share, and subscribe.